0: With everlasting love Let by grace and love in all. Spirit. Spirit breathing from above Thou hast taught me this song
1: Grace Elizabeth, and this is In God's Name. In 2020, the world as I knew it fell apart. The world as we all knew it fell apart. Suddenly, we're trapped indoors, disinfecting our groceries and driving to four different grocery stores looking for toilet paper. We were protesting in the streets, masked and nervous about our safety both from the police we were standing in front of and the virus all around us.
0: You are the dangerous one, You are the aggressors! No you no are no the animals! Riot. Take off
1: your riot gear. I don't see no riot here!
0: Take off your riot here! I don't see no riot here!
1: I was living in a rural area in Washington State, away from my friends and my family back in California, so I reached out to the therapist I hadn't spoken to in over a year. During one of our many pandemic Zoom sessions, I was expressing my frustration over yet another heated political argument I was having in my family's group chat when I remembered what had always been repeated to me growing up. Children are to be seen, not heard. My therapist stopped my rant to ask me who I had heard that from. I had to really think about it, but I told him that nearly every adult growing up at the church my family went to reminded me and my siblings to stay quiet by repeating that phrase. Apparently, that was an unusual answer because he made a face at me before that fun little timer went off telling us we were out of time. Off to Google I went. What unfolded in front of me was worse than I could have imagined. The church I remembered, the Assembly, was an abusive cult. There weren't a lot of resources about the group, but one of the founding members had kept a website up which detailed the various systems of abuse, firsthand accounts, and other histories and documents. I found out later that the website had stayed up for people like me, the ones discovering their own past for the first time. But that wasn't enough for me. There could never be enough information that I could get out of this website that would tell me why. Why would anyone join this? Why would anyone raise a family in this? And why did my own family never talk about this? I debated for a few months on what my next steps were, but ultimately I decided the only way for me to get answers was to talk to people. I sent out probably over a hundred Facebook messages to former members of the assembly stating that I was looking to interview people and I would love to chat about it over Zoom. I started with people that I remembered from my childhood. A large majority never responded after reading my messages. Some flat out said absolutely not. But a handful of people said they'd be willing to go on record to talk about their time in the assembly. I was in. And once I started interviewing people, I couldn't stop. Um, all right. It is Friday, May seventh at five o'clock. It is two o'clock Pacific Standard Time on May twenty seventh, twenty twenty one. It is twelve o'clock on what day is today, Wednesday, June second, twenty twenty one. Thursday, June seventeenth. Thursday, June twenty fourth. Monday, August 30th, 2021. Saturday, September 11th, 2021. Wednesday, September 22nd, 2020, Thursday, 2021. September 23rd, 2021. January 14th, 2022. I was on Zoom calls twice a day, either recording an interview or trying to convince people of the importance that their stories held. I didn't win many people over, but the ones who were ready to talk did so with openness and honesty, and to them I am more grateful than I could ever begin to express. I hope I do your stories justice. My hope in producing this podcast isn't only for my own healing, but for the healing of anyone impacted by the doctrines of the Assembly. Despite the introduction, this podcast isn't about me. This podcast is about the Assembly a group founded in 1971 by a man named George Giftakis and his wife, Betty. This podcast isn't about George and Betty either, but in order to understand the experiences these former members had, we first have to dive into how this group came to be. It started with the Jesus People Movement, a California-based movement born out of the hippie counterculture era where young people across California were changing the way that Christianity was practiced. They incorporated things like open-air preaching and communal living into their indie churches in order to differentiate themselves from the stuffy bureaucracy of mainstream Christianity. The two most well-known churches established during this time were Calvary Chapel and the Family International Church. Calvary Chapel has gone on to become a huge network of churches with over 1,800 locations across the United States. The Family International Church, also known as the Children of God, became an infamous cult, known for its apocalyptic messaging, isolation of its members, and the sexual abuse of minors. The Children of God was one of many groups that inspired researchers such as Margaret Singer to develop cult deprogramming methods to bring radicalized youth back to their families. The Assembly isn't well known yet, but it was in fact established during this time. I'm going to take this opportunity to rewind and tell you a bit about George Giptakis. Born in New York, October 19, 1927, the details of his upbringing are relatively difficult to find. George was creative when it came to describing his life. He claimed that he was raised in nightclubs and dance halls, and sometimes he described a strip club. But in reality, George's father was an immigrant from Greece who managed a small restaurant and lounge near Santa Barbara, California. George described his young self as an eager Christian blessed with the power to save young, sinful, and misguided women who were working in his father's alleged club by leading them to Christ. George Giftakis served as a private in the Marines in 1945, enlisting right out of high school. According to the National Archives, he served from May 16th to October 16th of 1945, exactly five months. The circumstances surrounding his service are about as convoluted as the details of his upbringing. He has told people that he was drafted and also that he enlisted at 18. He was either stationed in Camp Pendleton, California never having seen combat, or deployed in the South Pacific bayoneting enemies of the United States. He may have been discharged due to the malfunction and explosion of his flamethrower, or because he slipped on a ship and injured his back. He was, in fact, honorably discharged, though the reason for his departure is not recorded through the National Archives. George made it nearly impossible to truly know who he was, and he was really good at convincing people that he was important. So when he joined the Westmoreland Chapel in Los Angeles, he took advantage of their policy of allowing any man to speak during their Sunday meetings. He would often be the first man to the pulpit, filling the entire service time with his own sermons week after week. When the elders attempted to stop his weekly hostile takeover, he gave an impassioned sermon on Ezekiel chapter 8. If you're unfamiliar with this chapter, as I was going into this research, here's the basics. God appears to the prophet Ezekiel and shows him all the different ways that the house of Judah have turned their backs on him and worshipped idols instead. At the end of this chapter, God tells Ezekiel this, Therefore, I will also deal in fury. Mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet I will not hear them. George went on to accuse the entire board of elders of idolatry, arguing that they had turned their backs on the Lord for their own benefit, before demanding that they all step down and he be put in charge of the congregation instead. While this may seem like an obvious play for power, many younger members of the Westmoreland chapel had been desiring the reformation of the current Christian climate. Unsurprisingly, George spoke with such conviction and charisma that it was hard to believe that he wasn't being earnest. Some even found the sermon refreshing. I spoke with one such member, Margaret, who alongside her husband left the Westmoreland chapel to follow George Katakis.
2: Um, he didn't start out preaching against them. He was just more dynamic and more convinced that he had something really important to say. That was probably the main thing. And we being young and, you know, uneducated and all, we, if he has something he really feels this strongly about and he looks so spiritual, wow, well, let's listen to him. <laughs>
1: Between 1969 and 1971, George Giftakis established a following through living room sermons and various guest speaker spots across Southern California. George had decided early on that his church would not take a name nor commit to any denomination, stating that the act of doing either would separate them from the greater body of Christ. He often emphasized that church was simply a gathering of Christians, leading to the group commonly being referred to as the Assembly. Moving forward, I will continue to refer to this particular group as the assembly.
2: And he really wanted us to support what he was doing and be with him wherever he went.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that was not convenient with an eighteen-month-old baby. And went uh, the first seminar that George gave was in his home in um, 1970, I believe. Mm-hmm. And we had to stay in his garage in our Volkswagen bus. And we didn't get a shower for the whole three days. Mm -hmm. And I had to figure out how to get this baby to have naps when the house was full of people and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So when Sunday night came, uh, I was very eager to go home. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And Steve and several other of these young men were all sitting in George's living room, practically sitting at his feet. And he was just expostulating and expounding and and all this stuff. And I could not get Steve to go home. I was so mad.
1: Much of his time in these early years was spent with Margaret and her husband Steve, establishing them as his right hand in implementing his vision for his church.
2: But he would take us out to eat and he would tell us stories about how about different events in these different churches. Um, and every single story ended up with how, boy, I sure fixed him. I I set him straight, let me tell you, every time. And I didn't like that. I thought that's not, there's just something wrong here.
1: Despite his best efforts, Margaret remained hesitant not fully buying into how important George was to God's mission. Her hesitancy eventually became unacceptable to George, who employed his own wife, Betty, as well as Margaret's husband, Steve, to force her into compliance.
2: And he had Betty have a meeting with me and sit me down. He had Steve do a special thing to sit me down. And both of them telling me, you've got to get on with the program here because you are just uh, resisting God. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kind of snapped at that point. So after that, I was like, I had to be all in. And it was, um, it's like what um, cult researchers describe, you know, where the the mind control and the the pressure is so great that you actually just shut off, you know, part of your cognitive thinking. And
1: yeah, yeah,
2: you're just all in, you jump in.
1: Margaret would stay all-in for the next 20 years, serving her husband, growing her family, and helping Betty guide other young women to learn to do the same. I'd like to sidestep for a moment and introduce you to a woman named Marguerite Harrison. Marguerite was the wife of the late Pastor Harrison, who had led the Westmoreland Chapel for many years and had passed prior to George's fateful Ezekiel sermon. After George's confrontation with the Westmoreland Chapel's elders, Marguerite followed him in establishing his new fellowship. She spent months traveling alongside George Giptakis during the Assembly's formative years, introducing him to all of her contacts across the United States and Europe. George came back from Europe with an arrogance about him. Some reports indicate that he began wearing designer suits, and his stories about his life became more extravagant as he interwove his own importance into his weekly sermons. With every new sister church born, George would return to the Fullerton congregation and preach about how the Lord had a great vision for his own ministry. At one point, and I honestly can't be sure when, George began claiming that he was an apostle, appointed by God to grow his church because his ministry was the correct way of worshiping the Lord, and all other ministries were foolish, self-serving, or deceitful. The following clips are from a series of sermons by George Kaptakis, which I think illustrate this belief well.
0: And I think today we preach a very superficial and shallow kind of gospel in Christianity. I'm sorry to say it. Most people today, including Christians, live very shabby lives. Oh, there's a big facade and a lot of fakery, but very little excellence. There's the attitude abroad today, well, it's good enough. My friend, not for the one who is pursuing the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the reality of the living God, nothing is good enough.
1: Marguerite, perhaps following his lead, began looking for recognition herself, telling members of her own involvement in the growing of the Kiftakis ministry. It was clear that this bothered George, as shortly after their travels, George began to distance himself from her.
2: Marguerite hung on with the assembly for several years after that trip to Europe, probably another three or four years or two or three years. Or it was a little while. Mm-hmm. But she had no problems telling visitors and new people, oh, I helped George start this ministry, you know. I knew, I introduced him to all these people. George was not going to have that. So he wanted her out of there. And Steve was his hatchet man. Told Steve what to say to Marguerite and how to say it. And I was just, because Steve didn't normally act like that wasn't that kind of a guy for the most part. Mm-hmm. And it broke Marguerite's heart. I mean, she just, she was crushed and she had to leave and go somewhere else. And, um, and George you see it that way. That was the thing that really, at the time I was mostly thinking of it in terms of that's not like Steve. But now I look at it and I think, That was just George was just replicating his narcissistic personality and and cult leader traits
1: Mm -hmm. you know, on,
2: on these guys.
1: Marguerite may have been the first member of the Giftakis' new church to be excommunicated, but she would be far from the last. The Giftakis' assembly would continue to grow, establishing over 75 sister churches across North America, Europe, Asia, and Africa. The group never grew into a megachurch, instead breaking off into new locations whenever one location grew too big. All assembly churches were kept small and intimate, and it's for that reason that I believe they were able to fly under the radar. It's also for that reason that I believe they were able to develop such an extreme level of control over their members. But in its formative years, most of the people involved had an earnest desire to lead honest Christian lives. Here's another founding member, Tom, reflecting on his early involvement with the Assembly.
0: So what I described my first five years as I was excited about being in the Assembly. I thought it was important. What could be more important than to re-establish something that was what God wanted? That was how he, I thought. Okay, well, I don't think that's what he did, <laughs> but that's what I thought he was doing.
1: I can't blame Tom for believing in George. George was incredibly charismatic, like most, if not all, cult leaders. George painted a picture of a new, special kind of ministry that would stand against corruption and usher in the second coming of Christ.
0: And Lord, indeed, during this coming week, we do pray that we might be those kind of men, the men of the heart, the men of the house, and the men of the throne. But above all, our Heavenly Father, we pray that we may be the men of the heavenly cause.
1: Moving forward, this podcast is going to take a different approach to exploring the Assembly. I spent all of 2021 interviewing former members of this cult, and I want you to be able to hear what the experience was like for them. Their stories are far more important to me than the story of how George Giftakis turned into a cult leader. I want to show you what it was like on the inside. I want to show you how easy it is to get swept up in a positive and productive community, only to realize decades later that you've given up control piece by piece until you have nothing of your own anymore. And so that's what we're going to do from here on out. I hope you're ready, because it's not going to be a fun ride, but it's important that these stories are told.
0: Jesus Christ to me, Let's go.